As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. I could see what it looked like for someone to be very broken after having been harmed and and then over the course of months or even years, depending on how long the case took, to then see them heal and, and build power and find their voice again. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I was very lucky to get the chance to talk to the activist lawyer and social entrepreneur, Monica Ramirez. Monica is the founder and president of Justice for Migrant Women. She's been working to increase the visibility and improve the lives and reduce the exploitation of migrant workers since she was 14 years old. She's created legal projects, programs at places like Florida Legal Services and the Southern Poverty Law Center, as well as founding freestanding nonprofits and cultural organizations like Justice for Migrant Women, the Latin X House, Poderistas, and several others. She wrote the Dear Sisters letter on behalf of the Farm Workers Alliance that helped spark the Time's Up movement. I'm always impressed by people who've done so much and are still easy to talk to. You should know her and her work. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Monica Ramirez of Justice for Migrant Women. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Monica, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Monica Ramirez, and I am the founder of an organization called Justice for Migrant Women and the president of that organization. I also have a couple of other organizations that I've co-founded. One is called Poderistas, which is focused on, it's a lifestyle platform for Latinas, and I co-founded that with nine other Latina leaders. And the other organization that I'm actively involved in in the day-to-day basis is called the Latinx House, which I created with two filmmakers to focus on lifting up the contributions of the Latinx community and changing the narrative around who the Latinx community is in the U.S. I know because you've become fairly celebrated activist that you've told your story a lot of times. I want to ask you some details about that just uh, for, for this particular audience. You grew up in Ohio, right? Can you tell me about your family and your your roots? I really appreciate you asking that because actually a lot of people talk about sort of where I went to school and things like that. And 
For me, the most important thing is about my family. So I am in Ohio currently. I'm in the town where I was born and raised. Um, It's called Fremont, Ohio. It's in the northwest corner of the state. My parents, grandparents, great-grandparents were all farm workers. They came to the U.S. from Mexico. Um, So I'm third-generation Mexican-American. When I think about my work, I, I sort of think that other people kind of grow up and decide what they want to be when they when they grow up. And and I feel like I was born into my work because my work is so closely tied to my family and my family's history and identity. I was really lucky in so many ways because my parents understood that we were privileged. And, you know, my sister, my brother and I, we we are the first generation in my family that did not have to migrate for the purposes of work which is quite a leap because my father started working in the cotton fields when he was eight years old. So, you know, a generation later to be able to grow up in one community and live here year round and go to school, you know, from the start of the school year to the end of the school year, that's actually really remarkable. And I think my parents got that. And they also understood that they didn't want their children not to know what the, the struggle really was like what was happening, you know, for farm workers then and even before. So my, my parents taught us about farm workers and the community struggles. So from like the time I was a little girl, I was learning about the conditions and the camps and what it was like to live in a one room shack and which is where my father grew up. And my father took us to the cotton fields of Mississippi and we met the rancher that he worked with and all those things. And um, it was really that understanding and the upbringing that my parents gifted us with that led me to do the work that I do today. You said your dad starts working in cotton fields at eight. What is the path that he and your mother take that enable them to get to a stable lifestyle for you? How did they go down that road? Yeah, my dad's actually, his story is the most interesting, much more interesting than mine. (laughs) So my dad actually wanted to start working when he was five. He is one of nine siblings and all of his older sisters and brothers were working in the fields. And so he wanted to go too. And my grandfather said no. And he told me that he cried a lot. And finally, at the age of eight, he was allowed to go and work. It's interesting, right? Because it's such hard work. And when you tell stories about it, it's like he... He, it's almost like he forgets some of the hard parts, right? Like he he told me stories about how they would work all day and they'd be so tired at the end of the day that sometimes they would sleep on the bags of cotton, which were kind of prickly, you know, but they would sleep in the fields and then they just get up the next morning and do it again. My dad is a really, really incredible and special human. And um, the farmer that he was working with, his name was Gaden Smith. I think he recognized that my dad's just a really special human. And at that time, when my dad was a little kid, he, they were living in you know Mississippi, in Indianola, Mississippi, and it was a segregated South. And there really wasn't a school for Latino children. So none of my aunts and uncles who are older than my father have any formal education. My dad didn't have any formal education until he was 14 years old. Gaden decided to teach my dad how to read and write, and he taught him the alphabet. And after that, he worked with the local private school and actually paid for my father to go to school. So uh, when he was 14, he enrolled as a freshman in high school and failed the first year because he had no education before that. And then um, my father eventually completed his high school education and went on to community college trade school and got all A's. 
and in his final semester got one B. My father and his family were able to break the migrant cycle because of Gaden Smith and because of that support from Gaden Smith. My my um, younger aunts and uncles also got to go to school because my dad got a job at the Piggly Wiggly as a bag boy, and he helped to pay for my younger aunts and uncles to go to school. And when my father and his family moved to Ohio, they actually heard about Ohio because we had an uncle who was here and found work in the sugar beets. And um, so he sort of called the family to come to Ohio because there was work here. And so they came with the intention of working in the fields. But because my father had just graduated from high school, he was able to get a job in a factory. And that sort of changed the course for all of us. And then my mom's story is, is similar in that a farmer gave her family a break. My mom was raised by my great grandparents and my great grandfather had been working for a particular farmer in Ohio for a number of years. And that farmer gave my grandfather the opportunity to stay year round um, so that he could help on the farm even after the season ended. And so so he did. He stayed on the, on the, in the farm worker camp and then was able to establish himself here in the area. And so my, when my mom was born, they were already kind of rooted here in Ohio. She continued to go in the summers um, to work in the fields with my great grandparents. They worked in uh, picking cherries and, and other crops. But really, both of their stories are stories of what it can look like when people take the opportunity to actually show that they care about more than just themselves, right? And that when other people invest in you, what can be possible? And so I feel like my family's extraordinarily fortunate that these two farmers took it upon themselves to invest in them and and ultimately to invest in all of us. We have a very similar story in my family. On my dad's side, immigrants around the turn of the century, Jewish, um, no money, when they came over, but my grandfather had someone who sort of was a patron for him and helped him get, you know, do law school at night and hired him. And without that, who knows what the further course of our family would have been. And I'm sure there were those kind of things for many branches of the tree. Obviously we want to be in a country where we're not dependent on some one individual doing a good thing, but where the paths are are broadly available through public policy and things like that. But so you're you're growing up in this family, you're hearing these kind of lessons, which I think are are, are so important, so formative. I know that as a very at a very young age you start to get in, involved. Tell me about how that gets going. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing your family story with me and it, it really it does highlight, you know, the fact that some of us are able to create better lives for ourselves because we are lucky that people actually helped us do that. So I really appreciate that. And, story. and also there's talent everywhere, right? I mean, we had people rolling cigars and things like that. There's talent among people just because your family is somewhere like doing migrant work does not mean that there's not a lot of smart people, talent people, hardworking people that could rise up with just that window. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree with you. Um, So how did I start my activism? Well, first of all, I actually never called myself an activist. A couple of years ago, people started calling me an activist. (laughs) So I guess that's what happened there. Um, But, you know, so as I told you, my parents had taught us about farm workers because farm workers come to this community every summer. And my grandparents um, 
became people who were known in the community and were trusted. So every summer, farm workers would arrive in our town and they would seek out my grandparents, and in particular, my great grandmother. And so, you know, I asked questions about who they were and what they were doing and all these things. So they were very visible to me, right? I went to church with them. I went to uh, the store and I would see them. I'd go to my grandparents' house and I'd see them. And, and when I was about 14 years old, I was 14 years old, I was reading the newspaper because I was a writer from a very young age. And so I was always really intrigued by the, the, the newspaper and, and those stories. And anyway, so I was reading the newspaper one Saturday and um, the, for whatever reason, the newspaper decided to do a full page on things related to fishing. And so the page had this big title and it said, uh, welcome back fishermen. And it just struck me as really odd because there wasn't anything like that for farm workers. And so and from my point of view, like they were just as important and they should have had a page too. And so I asked my dad about it because I, you know, I would always go and ask dad my questions. And one of the things I really appreciate about my parents is they never really gave us the answers. They kind of gave us other things to think about. And, and in this case, he, he said he didn't know why. And he told me that I should just go and ask. I feel like my dad helped me be brave from a very young age because I would call people all the time and ask them questions about things because my dad made me feel like I could, you know. And so um, that particular Saturday, I got on my bike because I live in a very small place. So I hopped on my bike and I rode my bike to the end of the street um, and I went to the newspaper and I, I knew the editor of the newspaper because his kids went to school with me. And um, his name is Roy Wilhelm. And I asked Mr. Wilhelm, why there wasn't a welcome back farm worker page and, and there was only a welcome back fisherman page. And, and I actually, I kind of, I vividly remember because I sort of, I vividly remember that I, that when I asked that question, I think that, that he was sort of taken aback, you know, he, he, he hadn't thought about it, you know, and so it wasn't malicious. It just, he hadn't thought about it. Well, it's kind of an invisible people in a certain way, right? Yeah. And so even though they were so present to me, they definitely are not in the community otherwise. And so what I really respect about Mr. Wilhelm's response is that he didn't just say, well, I don't know, we didn't do it or, you know, we didn't have enough space or anything like that. He didn't try to make excuses, um, but he gave me an opportunity. And the opportunity was for me to write the page, to write the stories. And so what, at 14, I started my newspaper beat and I started writing stories about farm workers and about the Latinx community. And I did that until I was about 21. Wow. You must have learned a lot by writing those stories. That's how one learns is, is investigating and sharing, right? I learned so much. And, you know, one of the things that, that I learned was just how important it is to ask people about their lives and their experiences. And sort of, you can see people kind of turn on when they have an opportunity to talk about some of their own background. Because I think we don't actually ask people enough about their lives, you know, and about their background. And what I realized very early on in that process was that there were community members that had been farm workers that had been in our community for years and years and years, and no one had asked them what they thought or what their experience was like, or what they wanted or dreamed of, you know, and, and that was kind of amazing to, to see those lights go on and, and to sort of feel like those community members were being embraced in that moment in a way that they hadn't been before. Yeah. So does that politicize you? There's that personal side, there's that community side. And then sometimes people move to sort of a policy 
angle or a reform angle. Does that happen to you? Yeah, but, but not until later. Yeah, it did. I mean, basically, um, I went to college. I completed my first year of college. I went to Chicago thinking that I was going to find myself because in my community, there aren't very many Latinx community members. And, and I wanted to be in a place where there were more. And so I went to Chicago thinking that I would find myself there and this Latinx community. And I did find myself there, but it was really more about my identification with the farm worker community, because in Chicago, my experience was so different than many of the Latinx folks that I was friends with. But it was there where I really started to understand that telling the stories is one thing and important, but if we can't actually change things for people, like, you know, it is not okay to talk about the fact that farm workers have not been covered by most basic federal protections in over 80 years. Like you can't just keep telling that story and not do anything about it, not do anything to change it. And so that first summer after college, my parents wanted me to come back to Fremont and I said, fine, I'll come home. But if I'm going to come home, I'm going to do something that matters. And I reached out to the local legal services office and I asked them if I could um, be an intern. And they said no, because I didn't speak Spanish and I was not a law student. So I got a job waitressing at a local Mexican restaurant where I had worked during high school. And every time the lawyers from that legal services came in, I would just bother them and until I was so annoying that they hired me. And um, so midway through that summer, I ended up working with them. And I think that's really when I became politicized because I was able to see both the gravity of the circumstances that many farm workers were living in because I, you know, I was seeing the cases as they were coming in and I understood the casework that they were doing and that a lot of the bad conditions that my dad told me about and my mom told me about those actually still existed. Um, and, and then I was also able to see what the law could do for people and, and how it could actually achieve justice. And so I feel like that was really uh, kind of a life changing summer for me. And Mark Heller, who was my supervisor at the time, I think he just found me like very interesting. Like I was like an interesting kid to him because I kept going to him and asking him for legal books. I wanted to read about the law. And so he kept giving me legal books, like really big manuals, you know, and he just give one to me and I'd leave and, and then I'd go home and I would read it. I would go to the, the, the big boy, uh, you know, on States or a major street over here. And I would stay up and drink coffee and read those books until I was basically falling asleep, you know, and I would finish one and I'd take it back to him. And I think he just thought I was so interesting. I think he thought I was never going to actually read those books. Um, but he did not know that I was a, a huge reader. And so I just kept reading those books. And, um, you know, and, and with more interest that I showed, they gave me more opportunities. And, and, you know, they let me go on camp outreach. They let me be engaged in intake. And that really was formative. And and I'm so grateful. I'm still in touch with them and work with them. And um, that really, I think, helped shape my career. What were you finding in those books that was keeping you reading them? What were you looking for? What were you finding? Well, I just wanted to know about the law, you know, and um, I wanted to know like what protections people did have because I understood that people didn't have a lot of protections. The first book he gave me was a big manual on immigration law. You know, so from that point, I was you know, 18 years old. So long ago, like I was understanding what problematic about the immigration laws of, of this country. And in part is it's just, it's so, they're so difficult to even understand and so difficult to apply. And I remember that there was an insert in the book and the, and it showed like how many years um, behind 
the federal government was on the applications. You could tell, like, you know, where they were in the process for different kinds of applications. And it was like years and years that, you know, people had submitted their applications. And to me, that was astounding that we didn't have a better system to actually process those applications. And the idea that people would have to wait years and years before they could actually regularize their status was was really eye-opening to me. So I read basically that entire series of manuals on immigration and then, you know, some other things related to basic employment. And, and the sad thing is that the law still hasn't changed, you know, years later. Yeah. Did you um, say that you didn't speak Spanish? I didn't. Mm-mm. Yeah. Have you learned it since? Oh, yeah. Now I'm fluent. But at the time, my parents did not teach us Spanish. Uh, because they were worried that we would be discriminated against. And so they would speak Spanish to each other, but they never taught me and my siblings. Spanish is my first language, though, actually, ironically, um, because my grandmother took care of us and she was a monolingual Spanish speaker. And um, so my first words were actually in Spanish. And then when I went to school, when I went to kindergarten, I forgot it all. Got it. Yeah. But you, you, you had the sounds, you had the... You had some exposure that always helps later on when you go to learn it in earnest. I know you get through college. What, what happens to you after college? So at that point I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer, you know, after that first summer in in college, I decided that I was going to take a year off after college because I thought that I was going to move to California and work with United farm workers. And so I decided that I should spend one year at home close to my family because I didn't know after that when I would be returning or if I'd be returning to live in Ohio. Um, And that year I ended up working for a juvenile court and um, I was a life skills coordinator for a new project that they created for multiple felony offender youth. Um, It was a rehabilitative program. And honestly, it was one of the hardest jobs I've ever had. So I did that for a year until I went to law school. And then when I got to law school, I was just very focused. But you went to Ohio for law school, right? I did. I I stayed in Ohio. I went to Ohio State from the beginning because I knew that I wanted to be a farm worker attorney. That helped me to be really focused. And so much of the my coursework was focused on things that I thought would be helpful to me in my practice representing farm workers. You know, I was always always active in different organizations and doing programming. I created a farm worker awareness week program at the law school and did, you know, all of my papers on things related to farm workers. I remember I did a, a seminar on sexual harassment and it was about um, the, the paper that I wrote for that seminar was about sexual harassment against farm worker women. That paper was actually the basis for the fellowship application that I would write at, which would eventually give me my, my first opportunity to create my legal project in Florida. Did the problem of sexual harassment did you know about that from stories that you had been asking about when you were in high school and so on or through the family or what what made that particular aspect of the the varieties of injustice be the one that you focused on first well when i was in college um and working as a, a summer student at able Um, One of the calls that I took was from an individual, from a woman who was in a situation that was essentially human trafficking. At that time, I don't believe that the human trafficking laws even existed. You know, it was before that. Um, But essentially, that's what the person was experiencing. It wasn't a situation that we were able to get involved in because the woman was one worker. And a lot of the work that legal services organizations do tends to be impact work because of the limited resources. And I just remember 
thinking that it was unfortunate that there was nothing that could be done to help her and also thinking about how it was such a different problem than other people had had surfaced. And then that got me curious about women, you know, women farm workers, because I, I encountered women farm workers, but I didn't really know much about their experiences. And so then I started doing research and, um, you know, talking to women and just different things started to emerge that were clearly gender discrimination um, cases. And um, but by the time I was in law school, and looking for what was going to be my next job, you know, my first job out of law school, there was nobody that was doing that work. You know, it was a clear gap. During one of my summer internships in New York, the my supervisor there actually let me focus on gender discrimination. So I worked on a brochure about gender discrimination. So I just continued to learn and read and started talking to organizations um, about what was needed. And, and it was just eventually the road just led me to sexual harassment as one of the the biggest problems. I mean, farmworker women experience all kinds of problems and other forms of gender discrimination, but sexual harassment was one that was so widespread and people knew about it, but people didn't have resources or the expertise to address it. And so for me, it just made a lot of sense to create a project that focused specifically on that in a way that I could not would not be forced to divide my time on different issues. And so, you know, getting that fellowship that I received was a major contribution, I think, to the farmworker movement overall, because it allowed somebody to be focused on that issue to really then start to develop not just expertise around it, but also the materials that we would need to do outreach and to learn more about the strategies that would be effective in helping to support people who came forward. Thankfully, that project, I think, helped to create the foundation for other work, you know, and other organizations started projects that were similar to mine. Well, tell me a little more about that. So what was the fellowship? Where was this project located and what did you do with it? Yeah. So um, I received an Equal Justice Works Fellowship, which is a postgraduate fellowship for law students. And um, I chose Florida as the state where I was going to focus my work. I didn't end up going to California because I realized that in California, there were organizations that were helping farmworker women, but in Florida, there weren't, and that specifically helping farmworker women. So I took the project there, and um, it was focused on all forms of gender discrimination, not just sexual harassment. So I did equal pay cases, pregnancy discrimination cases. Um, I did uh, survivors of human trafficking, but the cases that came quickly, in fact, my first case was referred to me before I even moved to Florida, before my fellowship started, it was a sexual harassment case. And um, I worked with women around Florida who experienced sexual harassment by crew leaders, by by their bosses, by coworkers. And then in some cases, there were lawyers from different states who started to reach out because they wanted to learn more about the project and the work. And so I started to create materials um, that could be replicated by other organizations because my fellowship was two years and I didn't want the two years to pass. And then for me to, you know, not be able to continue the work. So part of my time was dedicated on creating templates and things that could be used um, by other lawyers in order to do similar work. Do you start this thing called Esperanza after that? What's the connection between that and what is that next step for you? Yeah, I started calling the project um, Esperanza when I was in Florida, actually. Um, but the fellowship was two years and the organization where I was working, they weren't really going to be able to support me as an attorney 
doing just that work after my fellowship ended. And so I was going to become a generalist. They were going to allow me to keep doing that work, but I was going to be a generalist. And so I was going to be working on other kinds of cases. And I really wanted to continue doing that work specifically because we just started, you know, and the, the problems were so vast. And so it was around that time that Southern Poverty Law Center was thinking about creating a project focused on immigrant rights. And uh, my former boss had been in touch with them about that. And they'd gotten some guidance from him about what it would look like to start that project. And so because I kind of was familiar with the fact that they were starting that project, I reached out and, and said, you know, I really I would love to talk to you about the work that you're planning to do. And in particular, I'd like to continue my work with with migrant women. Like, is that something that you would be willing to to do. And so they interviewed me for a different position. They actually interviewed me for a health and safety position. Um, and as, when I went to have my interview with them, I made a compelling case that the work focused on women needed to continue. And anyway, it was a process of about six months or something that they kind of took me through in which they had me write up a proposal of what the project would look like. And it was so detailed. They had me write a document that showed everything that I would accomplish month by month for two years oh and you know, what was the staff that would be required and the budget and all of these things. And so they finally uh, agreed to bring me on and my project on, but as a fellow, not as a staff attorney. And so then I got there and I got to work and, you know, within six months I did everything I said I was going to, you know, that I had set out in the plan. Um, and then they made the decision to bring me on as a staff attorney and, and director of that project. And I stayed at Southern Poverty leading Esperanza um, for almost seven years. I guess the biggest difference between my work in Florida was that it was not only focused on farm worker women. So when I went to SPLC, I brought in the project to include other immigrant workers and other immigrant women workers. And so I represented women who worked in small factories and restaurants and hotels, um, as well as in agriculture. Seven years is a, is a good, solid stretch to spend at anything. And you learn a lot in that period of time. What was like the key thing or two that really solidified or that you came to understand about the country as a result of doing that work? Well, I got to see a lot more of the country working for Southern Poverty Law Center because my jurisdiction for the project was 10 states. Um, so I had cases in, in different states throughout the South, and and that was really instructive because, you know, depending on where you live in the country, your experience can be very different. And, and I'm really grateful for that opportunity. It also helped me make a lot of great connections with community organizations. You know, I think that one of the things that sort of sets my work apart uh, from other attorneys is that it's always included organizing, litigation, policy work, you know, sort of all of the different tools that can be used in all the different strategies. And um, I'm really fortunate that SPLC let me do my work in that way. They didn't say, you know, you can only litigate. They let me build build it the way that I needed to. And um, that helped me to create a lot of really important relationships that I continue to lean on and allies that I continue to work with. And the last thing I would say is SPLC is a really unique organization in that it it has a lot of supporters. And so it was well-funded. When I was at the legal services organization, it was not very well-funded at all. So I, I would make my own flyers and print my own copies and all of these things. And SPLC had a real team of, of lots of different folks that could help with the different work. And that was important to see in practice, like what it can look like to have different people with those expertise kind of leaning in together to do the work. But the other thing is because SPLC 
had funding and had resources to support my work, money was not an issue when it came to building the coalitions. I think that one of the challenges that we have sometimes in the nonprofit space is that um, there is competition because there are limited resources. And because we were able to just fund the work, we were just we were able to dream about what we thought was needed to solve the problem and then just create the plan and do it. And we didn't have to worry about whether the resources were going to be there. And in that way, I think it was liberating. And I think it helped to really accelerate the progress. And the the coalition was a lot stronger because money was never a factor that we had to deal with. That's, which is really unusual in that kind of work. I think of what you did as kind of an act of entrepreneurship, the conceiving of this problem and working to solve it. And it's not that different from people who build companies or, or things like that. What do you think you learned about sort of that process of how do you make something from nothing? It is definitely entrepreneurship. What I learned first is that we all can create something from nothing, right? Um, and this is kind of going back to the conversation that we were having earlier where you don't have to be of a certain background to have ideas that you then turn into something like an organization. Also, I learned that you continue to, to change and we have to be flexible enough to change our work and the model that we create. And, you know, and sometimes... The, I guess one of the, the best things that can come from entre- being an entrepreneur is you're, because you're willing to take the risk to start something, you also understand that there's a possibility that you'll fail. And because you know that going into it, you, I think, are more likely to just go for it. And if it does fail, not be completely um, crushed, right? You just start over again. And so um, that's been one of the best learnings because I've been able to create a lot of different campaigns and projects. And much of my work has been experimental. Much of my work today is still experimental. And I've always said for me, because I didn't have anything, I didn't have funding, I didn't come from a rich family, you know, I didn't have anything to lose, right? And so I was able to just sort of take a risk and and see what would happen and hope for the best. And I actually think that that's been probably one of the things that's been most important about my work. And I think that the experimentation that we've done over the years has been really helpful in terms of breaking old habits. We're not stuck to doing things a certain way. And I think that because we're not stuck to doing things a certain way, uh, that's allowed us to be a lot more creative And I think has allowed us to come up with some really important strategies and tools that maybe we wouldn't have arrived at if we didn't have that spirit of entrepreneurship. Are any of the projects that you've conceived of and tried, did any of them not work out? Do you have any failures? Well, I think that every project I've had has had its failures in certain ways, right? Like the, like the campaigns that haven't gone exactly right. Like we maybe we didn't get the reach that we thought, or, um, you know, maybe we had to make adjustments down the road, but I mean, nothing has gone like, disastrously wrong where we had to like fold things up. It's just, it just required us to be quick enough to be able to make the adjustments that were needed to make things go well. Like, I'll, you know, I'll give you an example during COVID we were trying to figure out, you know, what was the best way that we could be responsive um, to the farm worker community because we were hearing right away from the community that there were huge needs. And 
Um, you know, so we made the decision to create this COVID relief fund and HIP, Hispanics and Philanthropy, which is our fiscal sponsor, agreed to partner with us on it. You know, we've had to make adjustments with that fund because, first of all, we didn't know how much we were going to raise and we didn't exactly know how we were going to distribute those resources. Uh, we had an idea, but we we had to shift. We had to think about like, OK, you know, does it make sense for us to use those resources so that it can go to food or does it need to be for um, some other kind of resources, how do we move things around so that we can actually make sure that people are getting tested or now vaccinated? You know, so it's been an evolution. And um, and I wouldn't say that I, that it's been a failure. It's just been, we've had to be open to the possibility of rethinking our strategy as needs have, have um, shown themselves over the course of the past year. So how did your career go from what we've been talking about to starting Justice for Migrant Women, the organization? What happened in between? Yeah. So, um, you know, after seven years, I left Southern Poverty and, you know, they're still very much a part of my family and very close with the organization still. And, but they knew that I took the project to them and they respected the fact that I wanted to continue to do the work, but that I also really felt like I needed it to stand alone. I needed it to become its own organization because I didn't want to be subject to priorities of another organization. I wanted to be able to make a decision about what the priority should be. And um, and so when I left SPLC, they let me take everything that I created with me, which is very wow. rare. Yeah. You know, I mean, I worked for them at the time, and but they were my ideas and it was something that I was building. And so they let me take it all. Then I went to work for an organization called Centro de los Derechos del Migrante, which is a binational legal organization and was working to build a migrant women's project with them, really thinking about what I call the loop of care. Like, how do we support women who are coming from Mexico to the U.S. to work? Like, how do we support them in country of origin while on migration into the U.S.? And then if they had problems here, how do we help them once they go home? I actually was there for a, a little over a year. And I unfortunately, I didn't get to stay there as long as I would have liked. And, and it was because the organization was, um, because of the nature of its, its work, it's, it's an organization that was experiencing a lot of attacks, a lot of different threats. And because I was the deputy director, I guess I was a, a target. I became a quick target. So very, very soon into my time with the organization, I experienced uh, death threats and, and other threats. Who are you bothering? I'm not even sure I understand that. Who are you threatening? Well, it's, it's not uncommon. We, we sue people. There are people that have huge interests at stake, you know, and... And was that where, where this was coming from? Like operators of agricultural enterprises or, yeah. I mean, you know, actually the, so the situation was very difficult and there were, there were about 32 serious security issues in about a six month period. And we never knew who was behind it. We, the, the police were involved. The Mexican government was involved. Authorities in the U S were involved because the, the threats were happening on both sides of the border it was a very, very challenging time. So I, I guess I was there a little bit over a year, not quite two years. And I had my baby when I was there. And so I actually got my first death threats when my baby was three months old. And so it was scary. very difficult. Yeah. And um, and so I ultimately decided that I had it was not going to be a situation that was something that I could continue to, to work in because it was difficult for my family. So I had a mentor who said, well, why don't you apply to this program at Harvard? It's this accelerated master's degree. You should go there and get safe, and then you can continue doing your work. 
And so I applied. I'd never thought about going back to school. I, I didn't intend to get another degree. Um, but at that time, given the circumstances with security issues, it was it was important. And so I applied and I ended up going back to school um, and completing that degree. Um, and while I was there, I continued thinking about how I was going to do my work. And that gave me the space and time to start um, putting everything together for Justice for Migrant Women. So when I graduated, I, re- I officially launched Justice for Migrant Women as an organization, but we didn't have any funding. So for a couple of years, I was actually working other jobs and working on Justice for Migrant Women on the side. And then eventually we're able to get funded. Um, and now, you know, we have a growing team and we're doing a lot of really exciting work in different parts of the country. I'm curious about that. Like I went back to graduate school after some number of years out working, not nearly as many as you, I found it hard to be a student again and to be treated the way that students are and to also to put the studying hat back on. Was that hard for you? Was it smooth? I mean, you know, it felt kind of like a break (laughs) from the work, you know, because the work was always so intense and, you know, it was seven days a week and and really long hours. and, And for me, school wasn't that. I guess the biggest challenge was I had a one-year-old son at the time and my husband didn't go with me um, when I went to get my degree. So one of my aunts came with me to help with my son. And that was challenging because um, a lot of the people in my class either had children who were older or they had a partner that was with them to help with their family. And um, so I was managing, you know, being a mom with a a little baby and um, also doing my schoolwork. And, but I loved it. I'd go back to school today. I love education. I love learning and reading and all of those things. So I, I enjoyed it, but it was a little bit more stressful because I had a little little baby with me. What's been the trajectory of justice for migrant women? How has that grown and transformed itself? And what have you tackled over time now? Yeah, well, you know, uh, before Justice for Migrant Women, you know, I co-founded an organization called Alianza Nacional de Campesinas. And after grad school, I, I became the president of the board of that organization. And that changed a lot about my work, how I do my work and who I work with, because I wrote the Dear Sisters letter that helped start the Time's Up movement on behalf of Alianza. And that was such an incredible change. You know, it was sort of like we'd been doing the work for years and years and years and people in our circle knew about it, but a lot of other people didn't. And then all of a sudden overnight, we were like in the spotlight and the work was just taken to a totally different level. And we were finally able to get funded after that happened. So Alianza now is fully functioning with its own team. And um, I was able to create some relationships with folks in Hollywood, like Olga Segura and Alex martinez Kondraki, who co-founded the Latinx House with me. And like the co-founders, some of the co-founders involved in Poderistas, we really met and, and started working together through as the result of Time's Up, really. That was important because I knew that I wanted to continue to build justice for migrant women. I felt like Alianza was in a place where it was going to continue the work, you know, on the ground with all the incredible leaders that were involved in that work. And I felt like I could then finally start focusing again on justice for migrant women. So that's what I did. I ended up um, leaving the board and spinning off justice for migrant women, really fully focusing on that. And at first it was just myself and my colleague. We were volunteers for about a year or so, um, full-time volunteers, just trying to set things up for the organization. And then eventually we were able to get funded. And, um, you know, over the last couple of years, we've been able to grow our 
support for the organization. And, and because of that, we've been able to actually build a team. And so, you know, we are now almost 11 people strong within the organization, which is huge considering that just a couple of years ago, we were two unpaid volunteers. Do you think that the result of the work that you've done and all of the other allies has made substantial changes for the daily lives of people that you're trying to change? How are we doing? Hmm. I hope that's true. When I was handling cases, I could see in a very tangible way how people's lives were being affected. You know, I could see what it looked like for someone to be very broken after having been harmed. And and then over the course of months or even years, depending on how long the case took to then see them heal and, and build power and find their voice again. Um, it's harder when you're not as close in that way. Um, you know, a lot of the things that we're doing, it's policy work, you know, and it's like the humanitarian aid. I know with the humanitarian aid that we're having a direct impact. Um, I believe with this new project that we just created, Healing Voices, which is a mental health project, I believe that we will see a direct impact from that project. But with policy, it's hard because it takes a long time. You know, it takes a long time to move political leaders. But thankfully, we're finally seeing bills um, that we've helped educate political leaders on uh, finally passing, you know. And, and so I have a lot of hope that we're going to see great change. It's not a quick process. Like, you know, I've been doing this kind of advocacy, you know, since I was 14 years old. And, you know, it's, it's a long road. Um, but I, I do believe along the way we have made an impact. Yeah, I'm sure you have. You've also, I don't know, obtained a prominence in the activism community, well-deserved, I think. And But also everyone I've talked to who has sort of gone down that road has mixed feelings about it, I think. How do you think about sort of the utility in being known and the complexity? Because a lot of times you don't want to be too different than the people that you're working for. Right. Yeah. So I don't think about, but you've been to Hollywood and been on the red carpet and stuff with activists, right? Like there's, there is a difference right yeah. now and, and you're, and you're an educated person, very educated person and, um, and consorting with elite leaders around the country. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I guess what I mean is like, I try really, really hard to stay as grounded as possible. I try really, really hard to, to stay as close to the community as possible. When, when I became an attorney, I didn't even like to tell farmworkers that I am an attorney because I feel like people treat me differently when they know that I'm an attorney. So I bet they treat you very differently. It's really important for me to, to focus on where I come from and who, who I come from. That remains true today. So I don't like to be treated differently. Like the, the attention actually makes me quite uncomfortable uh, because of, of what you're saying about like, it is so important for community members to see us as one of them to understand that, you know, when we think about the world and its problems that we're thinking about it through their lens, um, that we're not allowing the privileges that we have to in any way distance us from the communities that we serve. And, and so it is complex. And so I just hope that when people think about me and my work, they just think that it's changed and that I now have a lot more access to people and to, to platforms that I didn't have before. And, you know, and I hope that they'll think that I use those platforms and those 
those new relationships to the best of my ability to further the work. As long as we stay trained on the work, I think that is how we can, how I can best utilize these new opportunities. I feel like if the focus ever comes off of the work, then that will be hugely detrimental and it'll be harmful to the overall mission that we've been working towards for so many years. I mean, you seem to have a, a personality and a, I don't know, a value system that keeps you grounded and just, you know, hearing you talk and, and having read a little about you, but there are some people who it gets heady for and go awry a little bit, right? What do you think, are, what do you think are the characteristics of a good leader for, you know, reforming areas of society that need it badly? You know, when I was in college, I, I took this rhetoric class and, and in it, I studied some of the speeches that have been written by some of the greatest leaders of this country. And one of the best teachings from that course for me was that some of the, like the best leaders understood that, that really it was not about them and that, and that even the change that was occurring was not about them. It was about you know, the collective. And I think that for us to be able to make transformational change and to be in a position of leadership, that we have to fully understand that and embrace that. Like, you know, it's not about what I do, Monica. It's about what we do. And it's about how we see the world and what kind of change we want to make together. And that like whatever effort I'm putting towards that, you know, that's just a small part of the effort that's going to be required to actually shift things. And I think that as long as we can understand that and always remember that, then I think that's how we can, you know, remain true to the to the work that we're doing. I think that the history has shown that when when movements become about one person or one leader, that's when there's risk of them failing, right? If, if that one leader is no longer at the helm or if that, if that one person is no longer at the center, um, then that's that's very dangerous. And, and I've always been really clear, even with even with my team at Justice for Migrant Women and, and even with some of my other colleagues, like it can never be about one person. Um, the work that we're doing is not for the benefit of one person. And certainly it's not going to be the work of one person that actually changes things for everyone. It's going to be many people. So I just think that is that is what is required from, from our leaders is for people to understand that and to not kind of be swept away in, in a different direction because so much of the attention um, does get trained on a, a small number of people. It seems like maybe your most recent initiative is this healing voices thing that you mentioned. Mental health has been a challenge during COVID for the most privileged. It has to be even more so for the least. What have you seen and what are you trying to do and, ha and how? Well, what I've seen is that COVID has just made it much clearer that many of the communities that we serve and the lowest paid workers in our country, they've, they've always had um, mental health stressors, right? Because of the low pay, the poor conditions, et cetera. And now COVID has just made it that much worse. I mean, you know, this past year, I've been in conversation with workers who are so stressed out, who are so afraid. They have so much anxiety around whether their kids will be able to complete their schooling or not. You know, I spoke with one individual who talked to me about how she she was very close to committing suicide and then was able to thankfully be in contact with someone who who 
kept her from committing suicide. So I, I've spoken to people who have been really, really at their lowest and have questioned whether or not they could even continue. And that's been really difficult because I'm not a therapist and I only have certain ways in which I can help, you know? And so in, in some ways, some of those conversations have felt um, like I'm ill-equipped to manage them. And also those are the conversations that were the inspiration behind creating Healing Voices because we were hearing loudly and clearly from community members that that is what they needed and that was what they wanted. And so then it, as an organizer, it became part of my job along with the team to figure out how to meet that need, even if it's not something that we ordinarily would have done. You know, Justice for Migrant Women would never have ordinarily been considered a direct service organization. We're much more of a policy and technical assistance organization. But during this crisis, that's what we've been called upon to do. And, you know, I think that Healing Voices, if we build it correctly, as I think that we are, but if we build it correctly, it is my hope that we will make change, not just for the farm workers who we serve, who will be receiving the therapy through the group sessions that, that are being created, but also that we can change things for workers around our country. Because the truth is that a lot of workers around our country are experiencing mental health issues and strain, depression, anxiety, all of those things, you know, and when people have a bad experience or at work or they're treated badly at work, they carry that into their homes, they carry that into our communities. And so I think that if we can figure this out and if we can figure out how to convince OSHA that this is a serious issue that needs to be acted on, then I think that we have the possibility of changing the lives of workers and their families and potentially for our communities. And and that means that we might be able to also uh, address some of the biggest social ills that exist in our country. I wish you a lot of success with that. I want to ask you one question about the intersection of your work with national politics. Uh, it's impossible not to notice that the previous president came to power on a anti-Mexican immigrant call and made a lot of hay with that, and that we've had a change in administration where the attitude is quite different. But a lot of the problems are, as you've been pointed out, really slow to change. And uh, I just wonder how you view that from your standpoint, these big swings in rhetoric and potentially in policy. And what do you want to see out of the national government? Yeah. I mean, the truth is that for farm workers across our country, there haven't been big shifts in policy. You know, the, the, the policy and the exclusions have continued, you know, for more than 80 years. And, and it's been... Um, that kind of worker is exempted from most of the laws that protect workers. That's right. So farm, farm workers were excluded from the Fair Labor Standards Act. There are certain exclusions that were put in place. So farm workers, for example, are not entitled to overtime, except for in very specific circumstances. Farm workers are not allowed to unionize, so they're not covered by the National Labor Relations Act. Um, in certain states, there have been state laws that have passed, and so that there is the possibility in certain states for farm workers to unionize, but not under federal law. And, and so there's other examples like that. The law hasn't changed related to immigration in a way that we need to. Hopefully that that's coming. So from my vantage point, I feel like administration to administration, we haven't had anyone do right by the farm worker community for a long time. I think there are people who have certainly tried to make improvements, but we're really far off. 
I would say, though, the biggest difference is that from a narrative standpoint and from a cultural standpoint, the Trump administration and Trump's announcement that he was running for president and then his his rhetoric during his presidency, that definitely negatively impacted the farm worker community and other migrant people in this country and Latinx community members. I mean, we saw it in the violence that's been committed against our community. Uh, we've seen it in the way that um, our community is being targeted more by hate crimes and, and things of that nature. And it's other communities too. It's not just ours. And so from a cultural and narrative perspective, there's a lot of work that we need to do. And culture and narrative impacts the way people are treated generally in society day to day. And culture and narrative has a direct relationship with policy. So in my work, I try to look at policy and its relationship to narrative. And I try to look at our work in terms of how we can help with the culture shift. Because until people start to think about Latinx community members or farm workers or immigrants or migrant people differently, then we're not going to see different treatment for them or better treatment for them. And that's why um, if, if you followed our phenomenal farm worker project or some of the other narrative projects that we've done, we've taken those projects on because we understand that just as much as we have to get political leaders to change, we've got to get people in the broader public to change too. And that's going to start by helping them understand and really who farm workers are and really recognize their humanity. I mean, it feels like such a through line for you from your work in the newspaper as a teenager where you're objecting to the different status of fishers versus migrant workers to right now. You're, you're doing a bunch of these cultural projects with people who are like pros in that space. Anything you want to highlight in the work that's going on with Latinx House or other things that you've mentioned? Yeah. So, you know, the Latinx House, we launched it at Sundance Film Festival um, in 2020. And we were the, we became the first official partners with uh, first official Latinx partners with Sundance Institute. And that was a pretty, pretty big deal. That was on the heels of the El Paso massacre. And so for our community, I think it was really important for us to have a place and a space for us to come together and to really kind of send a message from Sundance that like everyone needed to take accountability, including people who are making movies that are portraying us in a negative light. Now, I think one of the biggest developments for the Latinx house is that we are now making our own content. So we started out programming, um, you know, to try to raise awareness about people in the Latinx community who are making significant contributions from authors and artists to, to folks, entertainment and grassroots organizers. And now we're moving towards creating our own content because I think that, We've reached a place where we've said, you know, we can't, it's not enough to just keep asking for more inclusive representation. We just have to make it, you know, we just have to create it. And so, so we are, as we're working on our first uh, short that will be released uh, in the coming months. And then we have some other content projects that we're working on. Um, and then Poderistas, you know, that's a new project that launched um, at the end of August, uh, 2020. And, um, that was created with nine other Latina leaders, uh, America Ferreira, Eva Longoria, Carmen Perez, who's the co-founder of the Women's March and, and, and others. And, you know, that project is really about informing Latinas about, you know, what we need to live whole and healthy lives and also 
really highlighting the ways that Latinos are making a difference in this country. I think that uh, for the 10 of us, when we made the decision to create Bolivistas, we really felt like Latinos are often an afterthought. Right. And so political leaders don't come to Latinas to ask them to help them with their campaigns or to vote for them or what have you until the very end, because they don't think that that our vote matters as much or what have you. There's research out there that talks about the confidence gap that exists for Latinas and, and whether we believe that we make a difference or not. So those are the kinds of issues that we wanted to address in, in creating Poderistas. And it's been really beautiful to watch that community grow. I mean, since the end of August, I think we now have like 170,000 followers on our Instagram uh, page alone. And and those followers are actively engaging with the community. You know, they're dropping comments and they're watching the different um, programming that we're, they're putting on the platform. And so I, I just, I love it a lot. I love it a lot because it's, it's just so different than the work I'm doing with justice for migrant women. Um, and it's just really, it kind of gives me a lot of energy and joy. Where do you want to take this career of yours? that you haven't already gone? What's what's out there into your future that you can see? I could see it going in a lot of different directions. I think I think one of the things that um, that will be a next focus, when, you know, I'll be working on my book. Um, and so what's that the, is... What's the is book? Coming. I what's can't tell you too much now, but there's a, there's something in the works. Is it going to um, have to do with migrant women and things in like part. that? In yeah, part. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so that's in the future. And... You know, I really want to focus a lot of my time thinking about global migration and the relationship between um, policies and practices in the United States and other parts of the world, because we can't think of this only as a domestic issue anymore. We can't think about how farm workers are treated in this country and not think about how migrant people are treated in other countries. And so um, I see, you know, in the in the coming years that that there probably will be more involvement on behalf of Justice for Migrant Women and me in the global migration space. And, you know, I guess the other thing is I've been doing this work for a really long time. I mean, it is, it is my life, you know, and, and as I'm getting older and as I spent so much time on the road for so many years, I'm also trying to figure out how do I balance, like, how do I make sure that I'm home and I can watch my little boy grow up and so that I'm not just building a world for him, but that I'm actually able to be with him and, and you know, experience motherhood in that way. So in the future, a thing that I'm really, really working on uh, now and into the future is just how to, to balance all of this great stuff that we're doing with um, with my desire to be home as much as possible and with my family. Yeah, I get it. You're the type of person I would love to talk to all week. I don't want to take too much advantage. Is there a question that I didn't ask that I should have? I guess one thing that I, I don't know who's listening and where they are in terms of their, their leadership journey, but it's really, really important to me that people understand that no matter who they are or where they come from, you know, or what training they have or don't have, that, that we have the power, each and every one of us to make a big difference. And that is my message to, to people who are thinking about, you know, how do I, how do I make a change or how do I do something more? How do I work on this issue? I think that we limit ourselves sometimes because we think that we need more training or more education or, or maybe we don't come from the right background. And I believe that we need to put that aside and just really understand that if our heart is in the right place, and if we're committed to making change on something that we care about, that we have exactly what we need now to get started. And that's just the desire to do good. So that's what I would want to leave folks with. 
That's a, a very good point at which to end. Honor to have you on today, Monica. Uh, anything else you want to say? Thank you. I really, really appreciate you and, and all the listeners. And, and I hope that we'll be able to continue to collaborate into the future because there's a lot, a lot more coming. That's great. That was Monica Ramirez. Monica is at justiceforwomen.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.